You're listening to Getting Lit with Linda Mora, the podcast where we welcome you to get lit. Canadian lit, that is. Join Linda as she talks about authors in Canada and sometimes with them, using her expertise to shed some light on recent and not-so-recent writers. And now, get ready for Getting Lit with Linda. Hi, this is Linda Mora, the writer and host of Getting Lit with Linda. It's one thing to say we understand grief intellectually. It's another thing altogether to experience it, process it, work through its manifold after-effects. And so when I laid my hands on Keith Barker's painful but exceptional play, This Is How We Got Here, I understood implicitly why it was written and organized in the way that it was. He challenges the boundaries of the aesthetic form, inviting us to consider what the limits are to representing loss, to representing trauma. I won't say more about that for the moment, because the play's organization and structure is actually a big part of our conversation together. But let me just say that the play isn't just telling a story, although it is. It summons its readers and its viewers into the experience of loss. It opens up a space in which we come to realize one doesn't precisely overcome such loss, but rather becomes reconciled to its lasting effects. First, allow me to introduce Keith Barker to you. A member of the Métis Nation of Ontario, he's a playwright, actor, and director from Northwestern Ontario, and the current artistic director at Native Earth Performing Arts in Toronto. Winner of the Dora Mava Moore Award and the Playwrights Guild of Canada's Carol Bolt Award for Best New Play, Barker was also a finalist for the Governor General's Award for English Drama in 2018 for the very play under discussion. This is how we got here. He received a Saskatchewan and Area Theatre Award for Excellence in Playwriting for another of his plays, The Hours That Remain, and a Yukon Arts Award for Best Art for Social Change. The thing about plays is that they're meant to be performed, not just read. I haven't yet had that opportunity to see it live, but I do know that there's a staged reading of the play, on October 1st, 2023, just as I'm poised to release this episode at Market Hall in Peterborough. So if you're listening to this episode today and you live in Peterborough, run over to get your ticket. And this won't be the last incarnation. For its 2023 to 2024 season, Persephone Theatre in Saskatoon is staging This Is How We Got Here, specifically from January 31st to February 18, 2024. I'll have a link in my show notes. And a little later in 2024, from April 13 to April 28, it is being performed in the Firehall Arts Centre in Vancouver. Yes, I'm looking at flights right now (laughs) as I work on this episode. And I'm pleased to have had the opportunity to speak with Keith today about his play. I was in Chichoge, that is, Montreal, as I spoke to him about his exceptional work, about the nature of grief, and about his aesthetic skill in dealing with his pain and its representation. Trigger warnings, we do speak extensively about suicide and loss. And now, this is my interview with Keith Barker. Hi, 
Keith, and welcome to Getting Lit with Linda. Where are you coming from today? Hi, Linda. I'm coming to you from the traditional territories of the Anishinaabe, the Haudenosaunee, the Wendat, and the Atawandaronk, which is otherwise known as the Stratford and Perth County area. Wonderful. Thank you for joining me today on the podcast. The listeners already know that we're going to be speaking about your play, This Is How We Got Here. I found this piece to be really moving. Could you give a brief synopsis about what happens in the play without spoiling it, if possible? Yeah. It's about a family of four, and they've suffered the loss of a child. And they, it's about them moving through their grief and how they get to the other side of that and how each of them, everyone, um, everyone deals with grief differently. And so to me, it was, it was just about how people are resilient and how they get through difficult things. And there's, you know, it's, it's the stuff you, you write that you say, you, if you wrote this down, you wouldn't believe it. It's that kind of, Mm. it's a story about a, it's a husband and wife and an aunt and uncle. And the aunt and uncle have no kids, and the, the mom and dad had one child. And in that, they lost their child. And you know that pretty much early on, and it's about how they move through it. The play's also nonlinear, and part of that is around the when your life is shattered by a great loss. Everyone loses people, and so the idea of that, that, so it, it, it's not a linear play. That's, in fact, anticipating my next question, which is oh. to, to say that the sequence and the shape of the events is so fascinating. Yeah. It doesn't move in chronological fashion, which is what one might expect. Why did you decide to do it that way? You're already giving us some indication because it reflects grief or the nature of grief. Yeah. I just find like when you when you suffer a loss of any kind, there's a sense of numbness that comes. There comes a point where you, you, you're trying to understand what's happened. Mm-hmm. And in that, you, sometimes you could, there's just these blocks of time that you just, you're like, I don't even remember that time or anything like that. And so I wanted to somehow capture that. And also the idea, I also had this visual, and I don't know where it came from, but the idea of, at the time when I was writing this play, in the city of Toronto, some of the condos, the big pieces of glass were falling and landing oh, suddenly. Yes. And I just imagine this play as as a big piece of glass. And when it when something like that, when something happens, that it shatters your life in front of you. And all the pieces are all in different, they're all over the place. And and the play is non-linear is to kind of represent that idea of people are not knowing what their life is or not knowing what the thing wasn't. They knew the thing that was in front of them before. Now it's something different. And how do they move their way through it? So there is a sense of disorientation. I think that's the effect, although it still coheres. The play still makes sense by the end. Yeah. So I wondered um, if it was hard to do to keep track of all of these pieces and yet still make sense of it for us as audience. Yeah. I mean, I had a dramaturg very early on say to me, like, you can't do it this way. It needs to be linear. <laughs> yeah, well. Yeah. And I spent a couple months and I wrote it all down as a linear play, like from the oh, start to the end. This is how everything happens. It just didn't work for me. Like I just, and as soon as I returned it back to what it had been prior to me trying to make it a linear play, it just made sense that it it's discombobulating it, that it, you don't know where you are and you don't like that sense of not knowing that's the other thing I love about it is that when an audience comes and that first scene happens and the, we move into all these 
these scenes play out and people go, where, what's going on? Mm. Like it may, it actually makes you, 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 you're trying to figure it out. And in, on that level, you're also engaged in the play. Yes. And, and it always worked for me. It just, and it was really difficult. I didn't know how to, how does the story reveal itself in a way when it's out of order? And I worked for months around moving one scene to another scene or moving a scene back and forth. Oh, I no got kidding. some really great advice uh, from Gil Garrett, who's the artistic director of the Blythe Festival. He said to me, you have all these pieces that are separate. He's like, you need to hang it on something. Something that is linear, you need to, you need to like, something that we can follow along and then all the other pieces kind of can fall wherever they may. Mm. And so there are two things. There's a Fox story yes. that tells throughout the play, you get snippets of it. And the other one is these, these men who are looking for some, someone. And they start the they start the play, and then throughout the play they appear, and they're still looking for, and you don't know what's happening. And so as as each little scene of these men appear between all the other scenes, that's a linear piece that mm. kind of guides people. This is like, don't worry, it's leading somewhere, mm -hmm. and it reveals itself by the end of what's happening. And and it also helps. It is also highlighted by other things that are happening in all the other scenes, and you get. You get the reverse. Sometimes things are revealed in the reverse. Someone mm -hmm. says something and then it's revealed in the reverse about how someone reacted to something before. And so I play with a lot of how how you hear information. And in, in, in this play, you hear yes. information backwards sometimes, which sounds interesting. Like someone's like, how does that happen? But you have to experience the play to understand what that means. Yes. Well, I didn't experience the play. I read it. And right. so I'm going to talk a little bit about that in just a minute. I did, or rather was fascinated by the repetition of that fox figure, the fox narrative that, as you say, creates a sense of linearity, but also it seemed to me like a refrain. Right, there's yeah. it, so that's what also holds it together. Yeah. But as a reader, it, I think that the experience might be slightly different than as someone who is sitting in an audience and absorbing the play. One of the key differences is the epigraph. Mm. So I thought perhaps we could just take a quick look at that. Do you mind if I read the epigraph so the listeners will know sure. what it is? Yeah. So it's from the book Jonathan Livingston Siegel, which, by the way, I read in high school and loved. Me too. So I was really surprised to see it here. Um, and the quotation is, he gave one last long look across the sky, across that magnificent silver land where he'd learned so much. I'm ready, he said at last. And Jonathan Livingston Siegel rose with two star bright gulls to disappear into a perfect dark sky. Why this quotation? That's a great question. Um, sorry. Um, yes. So, no, that's yeah, okay. We were both moved by it. Yeah, yeah. It. So my godparents, as my Auntie Jane and my Uncle Tom, and I call them Auntie and Uncle because they've been family. They're the first people to ever hold me coming out of the hospital. They, they, I've been in their lives. I like I. I think I was 10 when I realized that they, we weren't related by blood, but they're, oh, wow. they're my auntie and uncle. Like they are, I have lived and breathed their life with them and they mean the world to me. And my auntie Jane, uncle, and my uncle Toyomo uh, lost both their sons to suicide. I consider them cousins because they were very close to me my whole life. I'm and, sorry. I'm and sorry. no, that's, you know, I love that, you know, my uncle Toyomo always reminds me is like, I love talking about the boys and, you know, and, and when, they lost both their sons. We, 
we would go to their house uh, at Christmas because Christmas is the hardest time. And they would, we would pretend it wasn't Christmas for them. We'd block it all out and we drink wine and eat good food and play board games. And then every once in a while, Toyoma or, or Jane would go away. They'd have to go sit somewhere. And so we, we experienced their grief. We experienced their, you know, them trying to move on. And so part of that was when I wrote this play, I said to my auntie Jane, I was like, I, I want to honor you. I want to honor this story because it's a fictional story. Mm. Everything I wrote, I said, I did not want to re-traumatize them. I said, I'm not putting your story on stage. I'm writing a fictional story, but it's a, it's, it's, it's true to your experience as people who have lost a child. Right. I said, but I, I want to honor what I've experienced and seen in, in the stories you've told me. But I don't want to, I don't, none of this needs, I don't want any of this to be true so that you have to relive it. Mm. And I said, is there anything you need, you need in that play? And my, my auntie Jane said, Aaron, who, uh, her son, Aaron was like, Aaron's favorite book was Jonathan Livingston Siegel. And when he passed away, he wanted to let his parents know that everything was okay. And he, he highlighted passages saying like i i'm he's like i've tried everything and i've done the medication i've done the diet i've done everything and that i can't live in this world i need to go to the next and that's how he explained it to them and through this book so he highlighted all these passages to let them know that he was going to wow. be okay and so i i mean <laughs> i tried to insert the aspects of the book into the play and it just never worked. It always felt like the play was happening and then suddenly there was a quote in the middle. And so I went back to her and said, I, I haven't been able to, I just can't find a place that feels natural that it would exist, but I would love to like, I would love to, that be the first quote people, people read when they, um, before they read the play. And she was just over the moon. You know, she's seen the play several times. She's suffering from dementia now. And um, my mm. sister takes care of her in Thunder Bay. And she, uh, when I saw her in July, she didn't recognize me at first. And then she went, oh, you wrote a play about me. Oh. And then she said to the woman, he wrote a play. He wrote a play. It's really good. And she had seen it when she was still like with us. Uh, and she was so overjoyed and so happy that the play and my uncle Toyomo came, saw the production here in Toronto and both of them, I had, you know, before anyone ever had an opportunity to see the play before I ever did anything, I asked for their permission. So I sent them each the script and said, I need your permission. I know this isn't about you, but it is. And so I just need to know that it's okay for me to to move ahead with the story. And they were so overjoyed that they, they felt like it honored the struggle of not just them, but of any parent that has lost a child. And so I felt really good about that. That quote to me is the thing is just to honor my, my auntie Jane and Aaron, Aaron, who like the bravery to be able to say, like, you need to know I'm okay. And I'm, and, and I'm on to the next life. And, and I read that play too, growing up. I like that play, the book, book I have a, a copy of it. I've read it several, I've read several of his books and just that book always stuck with me as a kid. So it was actually really quite beautiful. It is for, to my mind, that book is about planes of existence. And so I did 
think or reflect upon that as I was reading the play. And I thought it was wonderful in that it mediated the reader's experience in a way that one wouldn't have if they were sitting in front of the play, but it makes it that much richer. I thought it was so wonderful to have that there to yeah. guide the reader through. It has that kind of effect. Yeah. And my Auntie Jane, that was like, she had looked at all the quotes that Aaron had highlighted. She's like, this is the one that, that I hold on to the most mm -hmm. that helps me say that exact thing of like, there is something after this and mm -hmm. her heart is settled by that. And I feel like in the play people, those characters are trying to find how their heart settles on something in order to move forward. So exactly. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, there is this underlying story now to return back to the underlying story of the fox, which is both mythological, but also literal. There's a fox who keeps reappearing throughout yeah. the play yeah. that inf it informs the stories of the characters in the play. There doesn't seem to be an explicit reference to the fox as an Indigenous figure. No one says that explicitly in the play, although I think it's at least implicitly understood. But what we do have are explicit references to Catholicism. So I was wondering if this is a deliberate strategy on your part. What's going on with those references? What it is, is that many people, my wife included, my wife and her father passed away. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it, it's, it's really good to talk about these things. It's, it's great. Mm. And we had this long conversation around that we always look to nature in these moments. And mm. there was a bird that kept arriving and they took care of this bird as it, it was not doing well. And they felt like it was their father. Like they, there was like, it's our dad telling us he, he's okay. And so many people that have seen this play, read this play, have said, have echoed that. And, and my Auntie Jane had said the same thing about, uh, for her, it was a crow. Uh, she was a, she had rehabilitated animals. Like she had, you know, and when I would go visit her, she'd have a loon or she'd have a crow or she'd have a, a bear and her whole thing was that these animals um they had to go back to the wild they weren't pets she never gave them names that's right and and but she had a real uh, respect for wildlife and she really felt like they spoke to her and so part of it was honoring that part of it is around the struggle with religion in t these times when they don't give you the right answer and for everyone it's different and in this play this fox arrives and it it gives her solace in a way it, for everyone. The Fox is different, has a different meaning and a different understanding. And each mm -hmm. of them, it plays out in the play, but I just wanted to like so many, so many people when they lose someone, there's like, uh, uh, Jane and Toy almost said that the, after Aaron had passed away, they kept finding seagull feathers everywhere. And they were like, it's you, they would find it walking in a mall. Like finding in places that you would never find them. That's Other right. people would find, uh, people talk to me about like, you know, having great loss and feeling really sad. And then suddenly something from nature, an animal appears or something. And they're like, I feel like that was my mom saying, I'm okay. You're going to be okay. So, so in that, because so many, so many people struggle and, and because we don't, we don't do that anymore. We don't come together. Lots of people don't have an organized religion in which they can't have a community like that when they lose someone. I find more and more often it was like, so what do you find? What do people find that comforts them in, in a time of great loss? And so the animals came to me and I really wanted to honor that idea of it. 
about what that means and how get someone through and when we're looking for a sign or looking for anything everyone wants to like have a dream of the person they've lost or they they want yes. some sort of sign that you know you know and so for me it was just such a beautiful way to bring and the other thing i would say to you is anyone who's writing and listening to this pick your animals well <laughs> because all the <laughs> gifts i get are foxes now and i love it i love foxes and, but i have a ton of fox i get fox t-shirts and little fox keychains and it's always great. All my cards, people send me foxes, and I'm so grateful that I picked the fox and not, <laughs> and not a cockroach or something like, you know, it's like, no, 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 no. Yeah. No, no. So, you I mean, the fox is such a, and it means foxes have always meant a great deal to me. I find them and there's a playful nature to them. So everything about the fox that I love was really embraced this idea of the finding the joy in the person that you've lost and how difficult that is but it's actually that they're here with you you still have so much life to live yes it's okay to be sad about me but it's also great to celebrate me and to keep talking about me and to keep me alive so yeah it's interesting because it the comfort that is derived from the figure of the fox counterbalances the lack of comfort that one derives from Catholicism. So I'm thinking about the figure of Paul, who talks about how he, his son is denied yeah. a, a proper burial. I'm going to put proper quotation mark. Because he's committed suicide. So that's right. Yeah. Uh, so Yeah, we. I had a whole scene. I had a scene in the play about Paul arriving at church on a Sunday. Huh. And he drives his truck and parks it in the back. Like you see the three, you see the aunt and the uncle and, and the wife standing and they're about to go in and he arrives late and he's had some drinks and he arrives to get angry at the priest for what's happened. Mm -hmm. And he wants to have a conversation with them on a Sunday in front of the whole congregation. And Jim, the uncle is trying to stop him. And the, and the wife is like, this is the only thing I have. Don't take this away from me. But in the end, it just was the only scene that was really, it was the only scene with all four of them. Oh, interesting. And it was really combative. And it just, it was just so different than the rest of the play that it just, it just never really fit in a way that I really felt honored that moment. And I think in actual fact, in inserting it into where it is in the play now, where it is a questioning someone else's motives around why they go to church when these things have happened when very clear things have happened and this person not knowing how to answer and, and mm. because that's where they receive their uh, solace or where they go to grieve and all that stuff. So it's, it's a great moment for it to be more complicated and mm. that mm. more than one thing can be true at once. And, and that's the thing I love about that scene is that it, it just shows that there's gray. It's not black and white in that, mm. in both of their experiences. Well, it's interesting. You say that there is no scene with the four characters, the four main characters at the same time. Yeah. What was the strategy in that? It, it was, was there one? There At first, it wasn't intended at first. There were a couple scenes I had. I, at some point, someone said, I, 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 I crave the past. And I used to have a scene where it was huh. all of them as young people. And the, the son is sleeping. And they've made a big dinner and they're barbecuing that. And the uncle comes in and says, oh, I just put him in bed. I think he's going to And it was a, just a fun scene of them all before anything, before they lost anybody. They're just, they're all, they're new parents and they're a new aunt and uncle to the son. And 
again, it just never felt like it fit in this, Mm -hmm. this, in this play, it's about people moving through their grief. And so suddenly it was like this going to the past. So every time I had a foursome with them, it just didn't seem to work. And I think it was the back to that plate of glass idea is that their lives have been shattered. And so they're never together. They're never, they're all separate. And in in actual fact, in many ways, none of them are communicating. And it isn't until one of the characters, the mom decides and realizes what she needs, that the Mm. play suddenly goes linear. And Mm. that, that was done on purpose. And to me, it's just like, yeah, it just always worked that there were the four of them never got together because they were so fractured. I think that makes sense, given the fact that you're you're discussing what grief does to people's lives. The fact that you can't have them come together is a register of how grief can tear people apart. Yeah. Their fox, for me, then becomes a really important figure in very slowly creating that sense of cohesion or weaving between the lives and bringing them slowly back together, even if not fully yeah. back together by the play's end. Could I ask you to read a section about the fox for our listeners? Would that be all right? Sure, yeah. The fox story has four parts. Each character reads a version, <laughs> one aspect of the story. The The last production I thought was beautiful is that the actors decided that they would, that this was uh, every year they would celebrate the sun by each of them, all of them getting together and retelling the story. And so these stories are are actually quite celebratory in the play. When you see the play, when you read the play, it's Mm -hmm. something different. But when the actors did the play, they needed something uplifting. So they felt like this is 10 years after and it's not in any of the stage directions. This is what the actors decided mm-hmm. on. This is it's 10 years after and all of them come together every year and they read, they, they tell the story to each other to remind themselves of the sun. And so there was mm-hmm. this, this kind of buoyancy in, in this piece. So each, each character tells a different aspect. The father tells the first one, the aunt tells the second one, the uncle tells the third one, and then the mother tells the last one. Excellent. Scene two. Fox story, part one, Paul, the father. Once there was a fox who lived in the forest, and he had a magical gift for storytelling. Animals would come from all around and from far away just to hear his stories. And the fox would spend all of his days making up story after story and telling them to anyone who would listen. But one day, as sometimes happens, things changed. And the fox, when asked by the badger to tell his own story, could not remember it. In fact, he could not remember any of his own stories. It seems he had told so many stories to so many people that he had, in fact, lost his own. This worried the fox. He had never lost his own story before. It had always been there to tell him which way to go and what to do next. But now it was gone, and he felt very alone. Luckily, he still had the story today. And today, like all the days before it, had been good. But today was quickly coming to an end. And if today ended before he could find his story again, what would that mean for tomorrow? With no story, there would be no tomorrow. What was he going to do? Thank you, Keith. That's excellent. Yeah, no. Thank you. So we've been talking about the subject matter, which is challenging to say the least. What kinds of challenges did you encounter while the play was being produced, not just written now? But, uh, so 
I understand that the published text comes yeah. later after it's been produced for the stage. While it was being produced on the stage, what kinds of difficulties did you encounter, if any? Yeah, I mean, we had we had people in the room who had experienced great loss. Hmm. I had an actor who had lost a child. And yeah, it was, you know, I you see firsthand uh, the deep impact it has on somebody and, and to be able to share that. But also like, we talked a lot about what it is to tell these stories and how important it is that this story be told with humor and with a lightness because when we go into those places and we talk, some of those truths is really difficult. And part of it, I, one of the first things I said to all of them is that this play is written with hope. Mm. These people, my uncle Toyomo read happiness now, and he was in a really bad place. And when he read the book happiness now, it changed everything. And I watched him just change. It was always in my intention is not, not to tell people the story and go in deepest, darkest depths. It was like, no, these people are struggling to stay in the light. And, and that was really helpful for those artists. One of the things that I think was most difficult is that those, there are people who don't know how to, they don't know how to connect to their feelings. Hmm. And sometimes hmm. I find actors emotionally are already there. There lots of people come in the room with a really open heart. And, and in, in actual fact, I was actually saying to them, you're showing too much emotion. Oh, wow. They, they don't know how to connect They you know, those men are my, my uncles, like my real uncles and, and they're real people that just would never speak about their feelings in that way. And so the difficulty and the joy and the, the actual humor oftentimes comes out of their inability to speak to each other, just about simple things that, you know, I, as an artist have spent most of my life working you know, and I have difficulty talking about my emotions sometimes, but I've worked in so many plays and we talk about our feelings all the time. Like I was like, these guys are cut off from it. And same with the ladies, they're sisters yes. and they, yes. they can't get past being sisters. Like my two sisters fight all the time. Like they're, everyone's getting along and then suddenly it just goes from zero to a hundred. <laughs> and, 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 and the sisters are like that. They, they are representative of what I've watched my sisters and my cousins who are all girls, this thing that happens. It was also a lot of fun just to say to them, like, you can't, don't, it's not that emotional. Like, really, like, mm. so much of of what we do sometimes is that we put up our shields or put up our armor and then we do these things. And I said, these people, I put them in a situation where they have to eventually let that go and be vulnerable, but they're going to fight every scene not to be vulnerable. And, and the the actors are so brave and there's so much to having to really go there. But we checked in every day. Mm. We did a circle every day and talked about it. We, you know, I was like, where are people at? Like this, there used to be this whole kind of philosophy around theater is that you leave your baggage at the door and you come in kind of neutral body and we'll put those things on you and you, em you embody a character. But I was like, that's not true. If you're having a bad day, if you just broke up with your girlfriend, if you've lost a pet, you're coming in with the, that and it's, it's, and you're someone, someone suddenly short or angry for some reason. And you're mm -hmm. like, Whoa, wait, what's going on? Is that because we just didn't talk about it. And so we just made it a, 
a, a thing every day in this play in particular is like, let's talk about, make sure that we're all in a good place. And we'd have to take breaks. We'd have a good little cry. As you can tell, <laughs> I'm yes. I get this from my mom. I cry, so of course we'd have, of course, you know. And you know, uh, one of the actors really struggled with trying to keep it inside, trying to say the lines and and not go there. And so every day, us just like getting us into the place, taking the right breaks people saying I was like if you can't do the scene you can't do the scene like just let me know like and and they did this beautiful thing before every show and sometimes in rehearsal when things were rough they would tell the fox story all of them so they stand in a circle hook arms come on yeah yeah so yeah it was again it was it was the idea of like because the Fox story does mirror the story we're telling. And yet at the end, the whole, the end of the, the story, the Fox is so hopeful that it kind of gave everyone a kind of a lift. And so, yeah, I wasn't expecting that. That's and amazing. That, that came from the actor saying, Hey, we need something that grounds us. And when we're, when we, we feel like we want to tell this story, but we just need to be in the right place. They found that like thinking of the future. Yeah. Thinking of those, those characters five, 10 years down the road, mm. when you, you never get over something like that, you never get over a loss like that, but you, you learn to live with that grief. And so they, once they all knew that and understood that, that story kind of got them through. So it was really, it was a real gift. Was there much that changed from the production to the publication <laughs> the we did it at some works the first time we did it and there's a there's a scene between the aunt and uncle and the two actors that played them they did this thing where they they felt like they needed something so they have this big fight moment where they're not communicating and he doesn't want to talk about it and she's saying you got to talk to me about this stuff mm. And she she just stuck out her hands in they were improvising one time she just kind of stuck her hands and he came over and put his hands on her hands and they sat and faced each other like they were they go to couples counseling mm. and they have to figure it out. And so they have this system where they sit down facing each other and they each hold hands, they look each other in the eye and they talk about their feelings. And they were like, We just need something like that. And I hadn't written that in. <laughs> And so they did it. It was so funny because he wants to, he, all he wants to do is let go of her hands and she's holding him going <laughs> like, talk to me. And he's like, well, I don't know what he, and, and so the scene just all of a sudden heightened and everything became, I don't like it all made sense suddenly because it was like, Hey, we have these skills, these things that we've learned, these tools that we use when we were not communicating. And so they would do this thing. And then at the end, it was like kind of blows up and, and, after that, I was like, hey, do you mind if I put that into the script? And they were like, <laughs> absolutely. And so the things that you learn in the script, that was one of the things. So there were all these little things that actors did that just kind of got added in. And some things that got taken out. I, I had this, um, the, the aunt has this confrontation with the fox at one point. And I used to have this line where the uncle comes in and stands in the background and watches. So he sees it's happening. 
And then she goes into the garage to get something and she comes flying out and he's there and he has the interaction with her. But I wouldn't have known this until I saw it. And I watched the scene happen and she's having this beautiful monologue. She's acting, she's acting her pants off. She looks great. <laughs> it's like very emotional. And she's like going there. And then suddenly my eyes get drawn to this guy walking behind her. And I was like, that's uh... not where I want my eyes to, as a, as a director. I want us to stay on her because it's coming. Like the big climax is coming of, of her monologue. And so I had to also write that out. Oh, the, uh -huh. the director had to tell the playwright, Hey bud, like you've, you've upstaged <laughs> your main character. And so it, when they did a reprint of the script, I had that taken out. Oh, great. And so in, in the first production to the second production and other productions, there are just a little aspects that I've tweaked over time words and things like that where i just felt like oh that's a stumble that's stumbled in every production so i'm gonna just make that little change and then the the biggest one was that the um, the marriage counseling thing which was, i think was, is a great story i love that oh, so much so and and i mean the first time i saw it i wasn't ready for it because i didn't know and i laughed out loud it was so <laughs> cathartic it was great so yeah tell me a little bit about the title this is how we got here, which implies yeah. a sense of stasis. But mm. even what you're speaking about right now, there's really not that much stasis in the play. Tell me about the title. This is how we yeah. got. Where's here? Yeah, exactly. Uh, for me, it was this idea of you can never imagine. Everyone says life changes in the snap, like in a second. Your whole life can change in one second. And... I have been in a situation like we were in a really big car accident a couple of years ago and we were heading to Toronto to see all our friends and I was going to play hockey with them. And then we got into one of those one. It was like a hundred car pile up on the 401. Our car flipped over four times no. and we were hanging upside down backwards. My whole life changed in that second. And, and we were okay. We, we were okay. We ended up at the hospital and, and, and a couple months, like it was months to recovery, but when I was writing this play, it was like, you look at someone and go, how did we get to this moment? Like, how did we get here? Mm. Both good and bad. You can win the lottery, get, you know, nominated for a big award. And you go, how did I get here? You know, my mom, I, I'm, I work at the Stratford Festival right now. And she came this summer and she goes, and never in a million years could I ever have imagined your future. Oh, wow. And you end up here. Like, it was not part of my life. We were from Northern Ontario. She goes, I didn't know anything about theater or anything of those things. She goes, and you end up here. I would never in a million years ever imagine you here. How did you, how do we even imagine ourselves here? And I find that with grief is the same thing. Like how did, and that's the thing I thought about the mom and the dad, that idea of like, how did we get here? And it's like, the play is, this is how we got here. So to me, it also suggests a process of grief. So not just we got here because of this loss, but how this is how we got here, meaning that the characters are constantly in the process of undergoing this grief and trying to reconnect after this incredible trauma. So yeah. here is really not a stable place, but that's okay. Yeah, I read that correctly. You did. Yeah. For me, it's like, how do you move? Like, I always talk about moving through grief, moving like some people like move past it, but that sounds like it's behind you, but it isn't. You move through your grief mm -hmm. 
and that is like i think it is it's it's not some in that you stay in it's something you have to move through you have to make your way through it and you meet people all the time who never move out of their grief or never move through it to the other side of it to where they can accept it or understand it some people hold on to it and they never get over it and so to me is like it is a thing of movement and how you move or if you can move or you know it can be like incremental and it can be you suddenly see someone's like they reinvent themselves or they they have to do something to shake their life up to in order to like mm-hmm. survive it and to to move on from it and not to say you would ever forget it but to me it's like it's almost like a map. This is how you get here. Like you got to go this way. You got to go through those things. And you hear people talk about the, the seven, the seven stages of grief or whatever the thing Mm -hmm. is, but there are these things you go through as you, as you recover from something and as you move through it and, you know, so yeah, so it's all, all part of that. It's a fact that you're having written the play is how you got here on this podcast. Yeah, exactly. And your cat, by the way. I think that was your cat in the background earlier. Oh, yeah. Banging on the door. They, no, they, no, tell them. No, no, that. please That's, extend uh, my thanks to them. I'm glad that yeah. they joined us on the podcast today. Yes, yes. They had an opinion about it. So. And thank you, Keith, for making the time for joining me today on the podcast. I really, I really appreciate this a lot. Thank you so much. No, it's my pleasure. Thanks. And that was my interview with Keith Barker. Thanks to James Healy for all of his work in the studio to support the production of this particular episode. And of course, as always, thanks to you, my dear listeners. That was Getting Lit with Linda, hosted by Linda Mora. If you have a topic you would like to hear covered, write to us at gettinglitwithlinda at gmail.com. Until next time, we hope you continue to get lit.